If the tomb is empty, anything is possible. That is something I've learned over and over again. I remember sitting with Jenny not long ago, and she's just telling me this story about, they, you know, they closed your head up because there was no surgery necessary in that moment. And it just reminded me, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, happy Easter. Grab that and meet me over in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. It's going to be on the screens uh, behind you, but make, make your way over there. A couple weeks ago, I was on a plane to Israel, and if you fly as much as I do, um, you run out of movies to watch on these planes. Like, I've seen them all. Delta has the same plane flight uh, movies, and they haven't changed it since 1994. Um, but this time, I got to watch what I think is one of the best movies ever made. And I know what you're thinking, Dumb and Dumber, but no, that wasn't it. Um, I watch a movie. If you're over the age of 30, you've probably seen it, Good Will Hunting, and it's about a kid from South Boston who grew up with every disadvantage that you could have in life. But the dude was a genius. So he, he gets himself into a lot of trouble and he ends up becoming a janitor at MIT and famously the, the professor who's a world-renowned scholar puts a, uh, an equation on the board and tells people if you're able to solve this, like you're gonna become a hero. Well, this guy, Goodwill, Will Hunting, he's the one who actually solves the problem. He gets arrested and during this time afterwards, long spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, it's like 30 years old, so this is your fault. Uh, he, has, he gets assigned by the judge to do some counseling, and Robin Williams is doing counseling with him. And, and, and Robin Williams says one of the most profound statements to him. He, he looks at him, he says, I bet you can describe to me from any book in the world what a piece of art looks like, but you've never been to the Sistine Chapel and experienced it. You, you've never sat there and felt the feelings of what it be, means to be in love. He says, you might be able to describe to me love by definition, but until you experience it, well, then I don't want to hear anything from you. Y'all, there's something that happens when the theoretical is experienced, when you move beyond what you're told to what you know because you felt it. Maybe it's watching your kid hit a home run for the very first time and seeing the smile as they run around the bases and you get to experience the joy on their face or, or that moment in the delivery room whenever all the pain goes away and you hold that child for the first time. If, you, if you've ever done that, you know you cannot describe with words the feeling that you have whenever you hold that baby and you see for the first time that that's your child. Maybe it was the moment you fell in love or you accomplished something that you're truly passionate about. Here's what I know. You aren't going to read about any of that in a book. You have to experience it. And in the same way, in the same way, you can have good theology. A lot of people in the cultural South have really good theology. You can quote scripture to me. You can tell me what Christianity or Easter is all about. But listen, if that gospel story never leaves your head and makes it to your heart, then you have not experienced it. See, I can explain to you all the methodologies of the gospel, but I want you to experience the beauty of Easter. What I want to do today is I want to help you move beyond something that you've read in a book and help you to finally feel the love that's found in Jesus. So let me set the table for you. When John 20 finally hits, it's all over. This man named Jesus has died, and a lot of people have staked their lives on him being the Messiah, and they're crushed. They're absolutely crushed. The disciples, they spent three years traveling with this guy, and it's all over. You see, the Jews, they knew that one day God would come back to redeem the world, but no one, absolutely no one, thought that the resurrection would happen in the middle of history. But this guy named Jesus, he showed up. He showed up in this little town called Nazareth. He starts healing people. 
He starts making claims that he's the son of man through fulfilling prophecies from Daniel chapter 7. He makes the claim that he's the light of the world. And not only does he make these claims, he begins to heal the blind. He raises the dead like Lazarus. He literally raises the dead. Y'all, people start to take notice and crowds even begin to start to believe that he might actually be the son of God. What you have to understand is that life in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago was really difficult. See, the Jews, they were oppressed. They were enslaved. The Roman Empire was literally trying to kill them. And Jesus brought hope. And sometimes, isn't it true that that's what we need more than anything is hope? Like as you look at the news, if you're, if you're brave enough to turn on the news today and you see all the devastation that's going on in the world, sometimes you just need a smile. And Jesus, Jesus brought a smile. See, Jesus did what nobody would do. He spent time with the, the lowly, the outcasts. He spent time with women in a society that, that nobody would do that with. Instead of spending his time with the religious elites or the Roman Empire, what he did is he gave dignity to those in society that nobody valued. He loved kids. He smiled. I get the sense, I get the sense that the disciples and Jesus laughed a lot. They joked together. They had fun together. He was the ultimate man. You know what he was? He was meek. You know what the difference between meekness and weakness is? Meekness is strength under control. He had swag about him. He would walk around and he made people want to be around him. It's almost like for the first time, people experienced love when they encountered the person of Jesus. But then he was crucified. It was all over. In that moment, the power grab of the religious elites of their day, the Roman citizens, they, they, they could not stand the fact that people looked and admired this guy and influence that this guy had, so they put him to death. And then they didn't just put him to death. They put him to death in the most humiliating way. They made him carry up a cross, put him naked, beat him to the point of which he almost died, and they hung him from the world to see that your hope, your hope is not there. It's only shame. But you know what Jesus said? In his very last words, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even in his dying words, he still is compassionate. Even in his dying words. Y'all, then he says the, the, the most amazing three words in the English language. It's one word in Greek, tetalistai. It is finished. It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. But nobody got it. Nobody got it. You're going to see that Mary goes to the tomb to try to help Jesus. They, try to, they, they think his body's stolen. Nobody gets it. When it was over, it was over. When death was defeated, it was won. All of their hopes and all their dreams came to fruition on that Sunday morning. They thought they were crushed. They thought they had no hope. But what you need to understand is that what Easter gives you more than anything is not only confidence in the resurrection, but hope in this world. Here's how it starts. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now John chapter 20 is absolutely incredible because the details not only show us that all of this stuff has to be real, but it also shows you the compassion of God. Like, if you'll read this correctly, what I think you will do is you'll experience God in it. Think about the tomb and the stone being rolled away. Do we have a picture of that I, 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 right here? This is actually the stone from Jerusalem that they think would have been in front of the tomb where Jesus was. That's a big stone. And these stones don't just get rolled away. Again, a couple weeks ago, I was there in Jerusalem. We saw this stone, and it would have been impossible for anybody to move it. Why? Well, first of all, because the Roman authorities were really good at their jobs. 
They were really good at executing people. And these soldiers understood that if they let anybody get into that stone that would have had the imprint of the imperial guard on, in front of it, if the stone was moved at all, then they would pay with their very lives. And you got to think about this. These are the same people that killed Jesus. They had absolutely no incentive at all to fake his death. Because if they would have, they would have died too. It would have not only made them look stupid, but Rome was doing everything that they could to shut this thing down. If you know this, this was around AD 33. Just a couple years later, in AD 70, Rome ransacks Israel, tears down the temple, and destroys all of Jerusalem. They killed every one of the apostles except for John because they boiled him alive and then exiled him to the island of Patmos where he lived out the rest of his days. They did not want this thing called Christianity to survive. Y'all, the world has done everything they can to shut down this Easter story, and yet they can't do it. They had no power over Jesus. Did did you know that even Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher, said in his lifetime he was going to destroy Christianity? He said that the book of the Bible was the most uh, tragic and stupid book ever. Do you know what they did after he died? A Bible society bought his house and started printing Bibles in his house that he lived. Y'all, don't you tell me that this thing is not real. Don't miss it. The entire world has tried to shut down Christianity, and yet the Bible has stood the test of time. This book that nobody wanted to survive, this religion that the entire world tried to shut down, has been the best-selling book by a long shot for the last 2,000 years. And if all this was a lie, don't you think that the apostles would have caved under pressure? Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was the chief of staff for Richard Nixon, who was in the Watergate scandal. Listen to what he says. He says, I know that the resurrection's a fact, and Watergate proved it to me, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You were telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Think about that. Y'all, Mary, Mary went to the tomb first in that morning because, because she thought that she was going to help Jesus out. She thought that she was going to continue to prepare his body. Jesus doesn't need our help. You get that, right? He had already raised from the dead and he had already done everything necessary to save you. Nothing in this world could stop him. They just needed to receive him. What you are holding in your hand or what you're reading on this screen is sacred. People died so that you could have this word. And everything in it, everything in it says that you shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to possess this. And it's the most powerful tool in the world. See, the reality is it's true. It's true. And if Jesus, if Jesus can raise from the dead, if he can move an impossible stone, don't you think that he can move the impossible stones in your life? Some of you have far a way too small view of God. Not not only do the details show that God did it, but it shows that he loves you. And some of you need to understand that because this brings you hope. And hope is the biggest difference in the world. Think about this. Imagine that you had two people that had the same exact job. Like, and I'm talking about miserable job. You know what I'm talking about? The kind of job where you punch the clock, you go in all day, you work all night, and then you punch the clock, you go home, and you hate your life. Like you grind all day. So miserable that, that this job is like dirty jobs kind of job. Now imagine, get in your mind that these two people had the same exact job, and they were told that for one year, you would work 80 hours a week with no vacation time and no days off. 
pretty miserable, right? Now, the last thing I need you to understand is one of these guys were told that they were going to get this amazing salary of $15,000 a year, like raking in the dough. The other guy was told you would get $15 million a year. Do you know what the difference between the two people would be? The way that they see the world, right? For the person making 15 grand a year, he has no hope. But for the person that makes $15 million a year, his outlook on all this would have been completely different. Y'all, that's what the gospel does for you. It doesn't change your situation. Your situation might be as, as difficult as anybody in the world, but you know what it does is it gives you a perspective that's completely different than the entire world because you have hope. You have hope. You have hope to know that you can live your life differently because if the gospel is true, then it changes everything. Everything. Do you see how Easter gives you the resources to live this life? How it reframes your story so that you can see that your story is in the middle of his story and it's a larger story. And because it's true, because it's true, it changes everything. Now check this out. Mary Magdalene is the very first person to go to the tomb that morning. You know why that's such a big deal? Mary Magdalene would have been the worst possible person to ever write into a fake story. There's a couple reasons why. Number one, a woman's testimony in first century Judaism would have never been considered valid in court. So if you're going to write a historical account, you would never put a woman there unless it's true. Not only would a woman's testimony not be considered valid, do you know who Mary Magdalene was? She wasn't just a woman. She was a demon-possessed woman that Jesus healed. If you want to think about the most unlikely person in all of the history of the world to find the tomb empty first, there can't be somebody that would have been more improbable than her. And the risen Jesus shows up to her first. Again, do you know why that's so important? Because Jesus came for the lowest of the low to show you that you can never be too low for him. He didn't come for the religious elites. He came for Mary Magdalene so that you can understand that the gospel is accessible to anyone. Maybe you're like me. And for a lot of you, you know this. I, I didn't grow up in the right family. I didn't have the right circumstances. And not, not everything seemed to be good. Most people would tell me that you're never going to achieve what you've achieved. And I came, I came from all these things with the least amount of opportunities, if you will. And never in a million years did I think I'd be standing here today. And yet, write it down, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Anything is possible. And if it was possible for Mary, it is possible for you. Listen, the cross of Jesus Christ proves his love for you. And the resurrection proves his power over your worst circumstances. Even the graves that you are carrying today, he can have power over. Now, here's the next thing. Watch this. Notice the day of the week. You see it? On the first day of the week. Think about this. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. If you you actually notice this, this is really important. In Jewish calendars, Saturday was the first day of the week, and now it's Sunday. Jesus changes that. Why? Because what I want you to see is he came to create a new story. He came to bring resurrection power to this world. God created the world in six days, then he rested, and then Jesus on the eighth day rose from the dead to recreate the world. Y'all, the resurrection is meant to be a story of renewal. It's about Jesus who would come to do what you and I could never do. He would walk that road to Calvary and he would die in your place. And Jesus didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. And he did that to bridge the gap of eternity so that he could create a new world in which you could live in forever. Many of you know this, my favorite chapter in the Bible is Revelation chapter 21. 
It's, it's the picture where Jesus comes back. And, and John, the same person who wrote the Gospel of John, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I, I've told you this before. The sea, uh, S-E-A, was, was all the uncertainties in life. It was allegory. It didn't mean that there wouldn't be oceans. It meant that the uncontrollable forces of your life will be no more because of Jesus. But then he says, Then I saw my God. He came out of heaven down to earth and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and we will be together forever. It's almost as if he came to recreate the world. And if you know the storyline of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, it's God with his people. Revelation chapter 21, it's God with his people. God came to fix the world and bring it back to the way that it was always supposed to be. See, the reason that you feel the way that you do is because you were made for so much more. You were made in the image of God in order to have a relationship with God and nothing in this world will ever fill that void but Jesus. Like, I I don't know about you, but if I think about my life, what I need more than anything is I need peace in the middle of the brokenness. I've just, you live long enough, you realize that the world is really difficult and what you need more than anything is not for your circumstances to change, you need peace. And that's what the gospel offers you. It offers you a down payment for the peace to come. It gives you hope and a perspective. Jesus paid the price of your life with his life and he rose from the dead to give you assurance that he will come back and he will fix this broken world. By the way, this would have been absolutely nuts to a first century Jew. Remember this. You wouldn't make this up because in Jewish literature, the resurrection only happened at the end of time, not in the middle of history. And no history can account for the fact. I need you to get this. No historian, secular or or skeptical, can account for the fact that Christianity kind of came out of nowhere. Within one generation, the entire world was worshiping Jesus. See, if you look at the history of religions, they kind of develop over time. Christianity didn't happen that way. It happened like that. The only reason why something like that would ever happen is because it was true. So you can justify your reasonings for not believing in Jesus, but I'm telling you, there is absolutely no explanation for the gospel except for the fact that it is real. And because it's real, that means that God loves you. That means that, you know, there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any more, and there's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any less because it's not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon what he did. Verse 2. So she, Mary Magdalene, ran and she went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. You see that? She still doesn't get it. And we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. And as they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and he reached the tomb first. I love this. John at the end of the Gospel of John, he, he reveals to you that he is the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Think about this. John's like, if I'm going to write something that's going to be in, in history books forever, I'm going to let you know that Peter was slow as molasses. <laughs> like that brother ate when too many Twinkies, and I got to the tomb before he did, and the entire world needs to know. Do you know why that matters? Because when you're writing in a diary, you don't really care about the details. You just write what you experienced. It was true. You don't add these things into academic literature. You write them down as they actually happened. And this is what happened. John's telling you what he experienced. But here's the, here's the deal. I love this. It didn't matter who got to the tomb first. It just mattered that they got there. You hear what I'm saying? 
God's not really worried about how quickly you got there, if you came to faith whenever you were two, or if you're a skeptic and you come to faith now. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon in this life, and sometimes you just need to get there. I think that that's what's going on here. John got there first, but Peter got there too. In the Christian life, you just need to get there. And if you're a skeptic, listen to me, it's okay. God's not sitting here wondering why you haven't gotten there yet. He just wants you to get there. He's sitting there saying, maybe on this Easter Sunday, you came because your mama made you to get the honey baked ham. Or it's tradition and it's just what you do. But what if today was the day that you actually got there? Look at verse five. And he stooped in to look and he saw the linen cloth lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been with Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in its place by itself. Have you ever had your house broken into? Probably not. This is Pleasantville. But theoretically, just imagine you did. We got our house broken into once in Durham, which is not Pleasantville. Um, Allison and I were going to Southeast Asia on a trip, and she had flown down to Atlanta to drop off our kids in order to meet me in New York for us to get over to the Philippines. Um, Well, long story short, she leaves, and on Saturday afternoon, I come home, and the back door is kicked in. I mean, busted up. Our dog is in the corner, and they ransacked our entire house. Like, they didn't just go through the drawers and pick out what they wanted. They flipped over the drawers, flipped over the furniture. It was an absolute mess. You know, it was almost as bad as Israeli security was at the airport last week. It was awful. Did you know that when people rob your house, they don't do the laundry on the way out? You know that? Right? Nobody sat there and folded up our clothes and made our beds. And... Now think about the tomb. Peter walks in and look at the details. The laundry is folded up in the corner. You know, Jesus wasn't in a hurry and nobody stole his body. That's why that's there. The leading theory in the world is this swoon theory where people stole his body. It's absolutely ridiculous. Nobody stole his body. The world is not in control of him. He took the time to make his bed on the way out, and he wants you to know that he is more powerful and amazing than you could ever think. He put the details there because he knew that you would ask the question. No one stole his body. Now watch this. A couple times in this passage, it actually says that they looked. Look at verse 5. And they stooped in and they looked and they saw the linen cloth lying there. Verse 6, he saw in the linen cloth lying there. Verse 8, then the other disciple, whom had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. All those times, he actually uses a progressive Greek word in order to show you that his looking became more intently over time. Basically, he went in skeptical. He looked around and investigated He reasoned, and then it says that they believed. I think John put that there because that's what belief looks like. It's not always easy for us. Sometimes we have to start out as skeptics. That's how I was. And you just need to look for a while, right? You need to look. You need to ponder it. Y'all, the gospel gives you that kind of freedom. God is big enough to handle your doubts. My question for you is, could you be wrong? Like, I know, I know in this society, we have a lot of questions. You should have those questions. They're difficult questions. Questions about sexuality or questions about marriage or questions about um, suffering, these theodicies that we go through. Those are big, important questions, but you need to ask the real question, the right question, the first question first. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, that changes the way that we view every other question. 
My question for you is, are you willing to doubt your doubts? Are you willing to say, I might be wrong? Can you suspend your presuppositions to simply look for a second? To look and ask yourself the question, could this be real? It's the most important question you could ever ask yourself. Could I be wrong? John and Peter, they were crushed by the fact that their Savior, their Savior was dead. And in that moment that the Roman soldiers had crucified their only hope, they were crushed until they looked a little closer. Until they looked with more intensity. Until they noticed the details and it all started to make sense. They saw, they investigated, and then they believed. Now, do you realize that the absence or the opposite of doubt is not confidence? The opposite of doubt is faith. And, and what the Bible gives you is a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. I'm not asking you to just jump. I'm asking you the total opposite, to investigate. The difference between Christianity and every other religion that's ever existed is that Christianity happened in the middle of history, which means that it's well-documented, and you can actually go and look at it. I've walked the streets of Galilee. I've gone to Jerusalem. I've seen where he lived. I've looked at the ruins. They're there. It's a historical fact and you can actually go and investigate it yourself. What if today was the day that you did the same thing? You looked in, you saw. See, religion, religion, watch this, is a part of every single society that has ever existed in all of human history. That must mean that there's something inside of the human heart that longs for something more. And if that's the case, you got to ask yourself why. You got to experience it. Like C.S. Lewis said, if we find in ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that we were made for another world. Y'all, it's not an accident. It's not an accident that nothing in this world can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Blaise Pascal, the famous philosopher, said that you have a God-sized vacuum or hole inside of the human heart that can only be filled by God. And that's why all of us go through this life wondering, why can't I ever be satisfied? Because the only one that was ever meant to satisfy you is Jesus. What if today was the day that you looked, you saw, you looked at the details, and you simply believed? Then, then the other disciple, verse 8, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and he believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture. Notice that that's capitalized, scripture, that's the Bible. That he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. There it is. Their faith had become sight. They looked closer, and it all started to make sense. They, they, they looked at the Bible, this book, and it started to make sense to them. They, they remembered the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. In, in Genesis chapter 1, how God created Adam and Eve in his image, and then he placed them in this garden where they, they would flourish with him forever. They, they remembered the moments that Adam and Eve, they, they chose their moral autonomy and they walked away from God. But instead of God rejecting them, the, the Bible says that the very first thing God does is he clothes them. He calls them, and he clothes them with close. Martin Luther, the great theologian, called this the proto-euangelion, which is the first proto-euangelion means gospel. It's the very first signs that God would come to redeem the world, that even in our rebellion, he was showing them that there is hope. They remembered the moments in Galilee whenever Jesus would heal people, and they saw the compassion that he had as, as he cared about the joy, and they started connecting the dots. They probably remember when the angel Gabriel came to Mary, the mother of Jesus, around the Passover, 33 years before his death, and told him that she would have a son who would be called, be called the Christ, the Messiah, and he would be Emmanuel, God with us. 
And then they looked at the Passover now, 33 years later, and they saw that Jesus had become their substitute. They would have known. They would have known that the Passover required a a spotless, perfect lamb in order to be crucified in their place. Yo, do you realize, I I saw this in in Bethlehem, it's really cool, the the shepherds would have been social outcasts, so they had to live underneath these caves, and these caves had these sharp, jagged areas, but they they kept the Passover sheeps. But the sheeps had to be without blemish so that they would wrap them up in swaddling cloths so that the edges of the walls would not cut them so that they could be sacrificed. Do you know that there's only two times in the entire Bible to be wrapped up and to be laid down or put together, and it's at Jesus' birth and at his death? Jesus would put on the sacrificial robes in order to be wrapped up and laid down to become the Passover lamb for you. It's not an accident. Jesus came as a helpless baby, wrapped up in sacrificial cloths to die for the sins of this world. It's not an accident that he died around the Passover. It's not an accident that all this happened. And for the very first time, the disciples' eyes are open that the whole thing is about him. Every detail matters. Every detail, because it connects the dots for how God would fix the brokenness of this world and how he would fix the brokenness of your world. All of this is true. And for the first time, they saw and then they believed. It went from their head to their hearts. Look a little closer and believe. Verse 11, but Mary, but Mary stood outside the tomb And as she wept, oh, I love that. That's the same exact words that are used to describe when she wept outside the tomb of Lazarus. She was hurting. She was hurting. She's, her hope is gone. As she wept, she stooped in to look herself and watch what Jesus does. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, which is absolutely fascinating because he was the gardener. Remember that God created the world in a garden and Jesus came to recreate the world. I love that. She said to him, sir, where have you carried him and tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Now listen, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus called her by name. She was the first person at the tomb and she was the first person to ever experience the risen Savior. And she calls, she, he calls her by name. The intimacy of that moment changed everything for her. Y'all, she wasn't just somebody. She wasn't just a woman. She wasn't just a demon-possessed nobody. She was a child of God known intimately by the Savior of the world. Think about that. You aren't just a statistic either. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. He has called you a child of God. It's not just that Jesus died for the sins of the world. He died for you. Again, I don't want you to miss the fact that Mary came first. He came first because for some of you, you still believe the lie that you're too far gone for Jesus. And he wants you to know that if you, get, if you don't get this, then you don't get the gospel. You can't be too far gone for Jesus because it's not about what you did. It's about what he did. 
Now, there's one really, really important detail here that I want to show you, and you can underline this in your Bible. It's verse 12. This is so important. It says, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus was laying, one at the head and one at the feet. You know why that's important? In the Old Testament, the word of God was put into this thing called the tabernacle, and on top of that sat this cherubim, which was an angel, and they, they called this the mercy seat of God. What, what, what happened there is that what, what you'd see is that in this mercy seat, God's presence dwelt there, and that there would always be a cherubim that guarded it at the head and at the feet. Why does this happen? Well, the angels want you to see that it's a picture of Jesus being the meeting place between God and man. The word of God, as John will tell you, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and he is the one that came to be the place where you can meet with God. That word of God is a truer and better temple, if you will, so that you can be with God forever. That's the point. You see, before Jesus, before Jesus, you had to go to a place to meet with God. Now you get to go to a person. And not only do you get to go to a person, that person, that word of God put on flesh, he lived your perfect life and died your death. You don't go to a temple made by man. You go to the living God and he puts himself inside of you. You see, the spirit of God lives in you, which means that you don't even have to go anywhere. You have access to God right now. As Zach said earlier, that veil that separated you from God has been torn in two and you can go directly to him because the story of the resurrection is true. And it's not just a story, y'all. It's the story that ends all stories. John Stott, the theologian, says the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, but the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Think about that. God traded places with us so that the most unbelievable thing could happen, and you can't make this up. You can't make it up. What you need to understand is that this story is so ridiculous that it has to be true. That's the only plausible explanation. A couple years ago, um, my, my family, we took a, a trip to the Great Wolf Lodge. Um, if you've ever been there, it's pretty awesome. We love it. But we got an army of kids, so we had to divide and conquer. So my wife, she takes our girls, and I've got our son, and, and they're riding these rides, and uh, me and Elliot are hanging out together, and it's awesome. He's young at this time, and he gives me that look. If you're a parent, you know that look. Like, I'm about to poop my pants look right? We're at the Great Wolf Lodge. There's a million people. It's in the middle of COVID. There's more chlorine in this place. Like you could kill an infant with the amount of chlorine in here. And, and he looks at me, and I gave him that look. That look like, if you poop your pants, I'm going to kill you. All right? He's looking at me, and we're doing this duck walk right here. And I'm like, buddy, you okay? Uh, and then the next thing you know it, he starts dropping little chocolate Easter eggs all over the Great Wolf Lodge. And I'm picking them up, and I'm scooping them, and not, it's, not, it's not chocolate Easter eggs anymore. It's chocolate milk, all right? And it's coming out everywhere. It's all over me. It's all over the ground. I'm running. We go to the bathroom inside of the Great Wolf Lodge, and I'm taking off his clothes and, like, hosing them down and trying to get them ready. And, and I'm finally, like, catching my breath, and we walk out, and it's like code brown. Like, the place is shut down. There's 17 poor high school kids making $6.25 an hour cleaning up my son's poop. And I'm like the walk of shame, embarrassed, taking him to the room. I get him back up to the room. Uh, we're in the hotel room. I'm giving him a shower. I'm giving him a bath. Allison walks in and she's angry. She's like, you wouldn't believe it. Some jerk let their kid poop all over the Great Wolf Lodge. And now we can't play. I'm like, boy, do I have a story to tell you. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes you can't make this stuff up. It's not just a story. 
It's your son. (laughs) And your son's the one who shut the place down. Y'all, these funny stories, sometimes they can be powerful. I get this, but listen to me. Sometimes there are just some stories that you look at and you're like, I can't believe anything other than this because none of it makes sense. Like you couldn't make that up. Like the disciples, they didn't just hear a story. They experienced the risen Savior. Mary heard the voice of God. People tried to destroy it and they could not do it. Jesus's story is your story too. The gospel cleans up your crap and gives you a new life. Y'all, you were so bad that God had to die for you, and yet you were so loved that he wanted to die for you. Oh, that we would be called children of God. Are you ever overwhelmed by the fact that who are we that you would be mindful of us? Think about that. Have you ever thought, have you ever let that sink in? That you are so loved by the only one that matters. The one who created the world looks at you and he is pleased with you. That changes everything. Guys, he knows everything about you. He knows every dirty secret. In Romans 5, 8, Paul wrote this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That means before you did anything to clean up your mess, Christ died for you. Listen, Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, when they sinned, God clothed them. The same thing is true with you. And now, Because Jesus was stripped naked and beaten in your place, you can take the clothing of righteousness that was given for him. That means that for the rest of eternity, God doesn't look at your filth and shame or your mess-ups. He looks at his son's perfect life in your place. That's why substitution matters so much. Oh, what love the Father has on us. Are you starting to see it? It's not just intellectual. Yes, the intellectualism should, should drive you to some, but it's an experience. It changes everything. Jesus really is who he said that he is. Verse 17, he says this, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, watch this, and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and she announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I've seen him. And she said these things to them. I've seen the Lord. You ready for another amazing detail? It's it's in the details. Mary clung to Jesus. Why does that matter? Because he wasn't a ghost. It was a real bodily resurrection. And Paul would tell you that the way that Jesus rose from the dead is the way that you're going to raise from the dead. That means that if that's true, listen to me, It's a picture of what heaven is going to look like. I think the worst image of heaven ever is that one day I'm going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp and listening to Chris Tomlin songs all day. That's not only boring, it's just stupid. You're not going to be an angel ever. Heaven doesn't get more angels. You're always going to be a person in a body and you're not going to be bored either. You're going to be doing what the Bible describes. You're going to, heaven is going to come down to earth. You're going to live here. You're going to work. You're going to have fun. And you're going to enjoy everything that this world has to offer except without sin. There's not going to be any hurt nor pain anymore. Like J.R.R. Tolkien said, one day God is going to make all the sad things become untrue. You are going to be there. And that means you don't need bucket lists because you'll have all of eternity to experience everything that this world has to offer. And it's going to be even better. Imagine a perfect world that you get to live in. See, the point is, if you are in Christ, this is the worst it will ever be for you. Now, I need to let you know, if you're not in Christ, this is the best it's ever going to be for you. But Jesus offers you something even better. Revelation 21, he's coming down. He's coming down to give you a perfect 
resurrected body. Good theology matters. Heaven is not adding angels. God is growing a family, and he's called you to be a part of it. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You know, sometimes the doors of our lives are locked too. What I love about this is because even, even if you're like these disciples, maybe it's fear of rejection. Maybe it's the fear of your intellectual friends who think that you would be crazy to ever believe anything like this or fear from culture that calls you a bigot for walking with Jesus or, or fear from God because you know the mess that you've made of your life and you've been too distant for too long. What I want you to see is that people can't be too locked up for Jesus to still come in. He came to Mary when nobody else wanted her. He came to Peter after he denied him three times. He comes to Thomas at the end of this after he doubts the resurrection, he came to the disciples by breaking through their walls and standing in front of them. One of the things that I love is that in Jesus' resurrected body, he still has the scars of the pain. And he bears them to be a reminder to you. You get that, right? Church, he came so that you can hear the exact same words. Peace be with you. Shalom is the word there. All-encompassing peace. Jesus came to bring peace because he did, he did war on the evilness of the world. See, death was defeated at the cross, and now that's available to you. The last two things that Jesus says before he goes into heaven is, go and tell everybody, and I'm going to breathe life back into you. Again, see the connections. There's only two things that Jesus ever breathed on in the entire world. The Bible, which he says is God breathed, and you. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the thing that made you different than all the animals is that God put the breath of life in you. Now, Jesus comes to give you new life by breathing his spirit into you. See, this is what you need to understand. You don't have to go anywhere to meet with God because God lives in you. And all of this is available. All the peace that allows you to go through the uncertainties of this life on solid ground is found in the resurrection of Jesus. Last thing he does is he commissions his people. Because if this is true, everybody needs to know it. I tell people this all the time. If I'm your friend and I love you, what kind of a friend would I be if I didn't tell you about Jesus? God didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. This Easter, I want you to receive it. I want you to believe it. I want you to experience it. I want your life to be changed by the gospel. And then I want you to tell the entire world, Jesus is the savior of the world. He really did raise from the dead. And he really did come to give you new life. And that really does matter. Because it might not give you prosperity in this world, but what it does is it gives you peace. It gives you peace that this world is not all that there is to, to offer. See, because Jesus really is alive, you can have him. And deep down inside, here's what I know about every single one of us. I know that we don't feel like we measure up. Did you know that every man's deepest, darkest secret is they don't feel like they measure up? There's an insecurity about them. You know, you can play the I'm a good person card all day long. But let's just be honest. 
Compared to who? Like, I know we can all go to that deep, the deep well of Hitler or whoever. Oh, okay, good job. You're better than him. But according to who? At the end of the day, and I said this on Friday, the I'm a good person card is a slap in the face to God. Because if you can do anything to save yourself, then the cross and the resurrection were unnecessary. But the reality is, is you don't even have to be a good person because he came to fill that God-sized hole by doing it in your place. He came to give you new life. He came to offer you wholeness. See, if I could give you anything today, I want you to feel how much he loves you. He proved his love for you. He doesn't want you to feel incomplete or broken anymore. Revelation 21 says that one day he will come and wipe away every tear from your eyes. God of the universe with those nails pierced hands is going to put them to your sweet face in the most intimate way, call you by name and wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more. Neither be mourning nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. They passed away in Jesus. Have you received that? Have you traded in your life for his? That's the offer of Easter. It's really the most simple all forever and yet the most challenging because in order to receive it, you've got to step off the throne of your life and let him on it. And that's not easy. But if the resurrection is true, then that changes everything. Jesus really did raise from the dead. And the offer for you is to take it from here to here and experience it because I promise you it will change everything. Let me pray for you. Father, I... Sometimes I'm dumbfounded by the fact that you did this, that you really cared that deeply about us that you would lavish your love on us, that you would step off of your throne in eternity, perfect and righteous, and that you would live our life in our place, walking this world, doing what we could never do, and then doing it for us. God, I'm... I'm tired of always knowing this truth and not letting it impact my letting it impact my life. Lord, the thing that you put inside of all of us is this spirit of the living God that, that brings forth the fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control. Lord, you didn't just die in our place. You live with us. You told us that you'll never leave us, nor will you forsake us. You've given us hope. You've made us new creations now. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who has never received that, like really receive that. Maybe they know it to be true intellectually, but let it travel those, those two feet from their head to their heart. God, would you awaken new life in us now? And I pray for those who do know you, who have received that, but, but maybe living with your presence, but not filled by your spirit. God, would you fill us with you? Would you make us to know you and to serve you and to long for you and to have hope and shalom, peace in the midst of the storms? Thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection. Thank you that Easter is true because it changes everything. We love you and pray this all in your name. Amen.